Well, let's get our Bibles out tonight. We're in the book of Esther, and we are going to finish up tonight, not just the book of Esther, but we're going to finish up the historical books of the Old Testament tonight. Uh, This is the last of the historical books. After we study through Matthew in the coming year, then we'll jump right back to the book of Job, and we'll begin the section of Scripture known as the poetical books of the Hebrew Scriptures. So, a lot to look forward to there. You know, the book of Esther is a story full of daring and intrigue. It's what we might call a cliffhanger. It's one of my favorite Bible books. But the book of Esther is not without its opponents. Did you know that Martin Luther wrote of this book? I'm so great an enemy to the book of Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen perversions. It is true that Esther and her cousin Mordecai were not pristine examples of Jewish orthodoxy. They broke dietary laws. They violated the Sabbath laws. Esther even married a pagan, idol-worshiping king. The two of them, Esther and Mordecai, had very little interest in returning to their Jewish homeland and rebuilding their temple and reestablishing their nation. And worse, in the book of Esther, in these 167 verses, the name Ahasuerus, the corrupt Gentile king, appears 190 times, while God's name, Jehovah, is never mentioned, not even once. But the rejection of this book is due to the misunderstanding of its message. Esther and Mordecai represent the attitude of the diaspora Jews throughout the centuries, and in modern times, the state of Israel. As were Esther and Mordecai in Persia, Jews today are fiercely loyal to their Jewishness. Modern Israelis are prepared to die defending their culture and their heritage and their survival as a people. But they're far more patriotic than they are pious. In Israel today, religious Jews are a minority. Modern Israelis have embraced Western culture by and large. They're indifferent to the laws of Moses. Drive down the freeway in Tel Aviv, and you'll see the billboards of scantily clad models selling commercial products. It's Western secularism at its best. In fact, Israeli leaders will talk about the indomitable human spirit, and yet seldom do they give God the credit for their country's remarkable resurgence and its military successes. But here's the point of the book. Despite the Jews' unfaithfulness to God, God has remained faithful to the Jews. It's another example of God's amazing grace. God's providence is His overarching supervision in the affairs of man. And His providence has protected and guided the Jews throughout their history. Psalm 121 puts it, He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And indeed he hasn't. One author sums up the message of Esther as follows. The absence of the name of God does not mean the absence of the hand of God. Remember that. Well, before we dive into chapter 5, let's recap the first four chapters. Esther was a Jewish orphan. She was raised by her older cousin Mordecai. 
Esther is a beauty queen who really does become a queen. She's taken into the king's harem in an ancient version of The Bachelor. Each girl gets a night with the king. And the babe he likes best is the one who's crowned. Esther is interviewed, and she's the one who gets chosen. Meanwhile, Mordecai, he has a run-in with a Jew hater named Haman. Haman was the king's administrator. He was an egomaniac, and he expected everyone to bow to him as his entourage passed through the city gates. When Mordecai refuses to bow, Haman puts out a contract, not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jews within a year. Mordecai believes that God has placed Esther in the king's palace, quote, for such a time as this. It's her duty in his mind to go before the king on behalf of the Jews. Esther knows anyone who approaches King Ahasuerus uninvited risks, takes a big risk, risks losing their head. But after mulling it over, after thinking it through, she becomes willing to take the risk. You remember her immortal words? If I perish, I perish. But chapter 5 begins. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. She's trembling. You know she is. Her life is on the line. If the sight of his queen doesn't please King Ahasuerus, Esther will be executed on the spot. The golden scepter pointed her way is her only salvation. You know, it's been said, a rash person acts without fear. A brave person acts in spite of it. We all get afraid. But Esther allowed her faith to rise above her fears. You've heard this old saying, when your knees knock, kneel on them. Apparently, that's what Esther had done. She refused to buckle under to her fears. She gets on her knees, she trusts the Lord, and then she goes in to obey. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Obviously, God had softened the king's heart for Esther's arrival. Now the king is in a generous mood. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Now Esther is acting shrewdly. Remember what we talked about last week. Ahasuerus was renowned as quite a boozer. He loved to drink. He was probably an alcoholic. And in verse 6 here, Esther invites him to a banquet. But literally, it's a banquet of wine. Queen Esther invites the king and Haman to her place for a few drinks. She thinks she stands a better chance of tipping the king her way if she can get him a little tipsy. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. 
What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. Wow. Talk about a blank check. It shall be done. Here for a second time, she's being asked to make her request. Again, though, she refuses. And it's interesting. You wonder why. Perhaps she's building up enough nerve. Maybe she's waiting for the perfect timing. Perhaps she's doing both. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. (laughs) She invites Ahasuerus and Haman to another banquet the next day. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him. In other words, he refused to be intimidated. He was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Haman's going home. He's feeling fine. If it were not for that Jew, that stubborn Jew, Mordecai, who refuses to bow like everyone else. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Haman calls together uh, his friends and his neighbors. His wife is there. He's hosting this impromptu dinner party. And he toasts himself and all of his successes. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow, I am again invited by her along with the king. You can tell he's feeling great. I've even been invited to a private audience with the queen. And yet there's one burr in Haman's happy saddle. The fly in this guy's coffee is a guy named Mordecai. Verse 13 reveals Haman's frustration. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Haman should have been happy, but he seethes over the Jew who defies his authority. Mordecai has a thorn in his side. And it is a type of the whole Jewish race. In his book, Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler sounded like Haman when he wrote these words. Wherever I went, I began to see Jews. Gradually, I began to hate them. Hitler, like many others before and since, were jealous of the Jews. You see, throughout history, wherever the Jewish people have settled, God in His providence has blessed the Jews. He's blessed them with a Midas touch. They've been successful everywhere they've settled. From the Middle Ages onward, Jews excelled at banking and finance. A disproportionate number of Jews became physicians and merchants. Gentile jealousy became one of the leading factors of Jewish persecution. Mark Twain, himself a Jew, once wrote these words, I'm convinced the crucifixion has not much to do with the world's attitude toward the Jew. The reasons for it are much older than that. The Jew is a money getter. And in getting his money, 
he is a very serious obstacle to less capable neighbors who are in the same quest. The cost to him has been heavy. His successes has made the whole human race his enemy. Indeed. And this is the problem in the Middle East today. For hundreds of years, the Palestinians cared nothing about the land that we today call Israel. It was a desert. It was a wasteland. Then, around the turn of the last century, Zionist Jews began to return to the land. And what did they do? They drained the swamps, and they planted trees, and they developed farms, and they irrigated valleys, and they turned what was once a desert into a garden. Now suddenly the Palestinians want their land back. For centuries they cared nothing about it until the Jews returned and turned it into an oasis. Once again, the Jews have fallen victim to the jealousy of their neighbors. Mordecai was a thorn in a Gentile side, just as the Jews have been for centuries. Verse 14. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, 50 cubits tall, about 75 feet high. And in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. Sadly, Zerus' suggestion has been an all-too-common response to Gentile jealousy of the Jews. Just kill them! That's what Hitler said. Take the Jews to the gallows. Sadly, the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. And apparently the construction took place immediately. The gallows went up overnight. If Haman can swing it with the king the next morning, Mordecai will be swinging before nightfall. In chapter 6, the scene shifts to the king's bedroom, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. Evidently, the guy at Little Caesars put anchovies on his pizza. Because he couldn't sleep. And the king needed some shut-eye. He had a busy day in front of him. And so what do you do when you can't sleep? You bring out the royal records. Surely a few pages of governmental regulations will put anybody to sleep. And so we're told, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. But guess what page gets read? Here we go again. God's providence is at work. Verse 2 tells us, And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. You remember at the end of chapter 2 when Mordecai uncovered this plot to assassinate the king. He snitched to Esther. Esther told the king and it saved Ahasuerus' life. Mordecai's bravery and his loyalty to the king had been recorded, but he had gone unrewarded. And I'm sure Mordecai felt cheated at the time. Maybe he even felt betrayed by the king. Perhaps he felt betrayed by God. Hey, I do this good deed and nothing happens. But there was a reason. And guys, there is always a reason. God has his purposes. Just because you feel cheated, just because you go unrewarded, doesn't mean that God has forgotten or that God has neglected. 
Perhaps God has a reason hidden from view that's going to come back to play in the near future. Well, God's purpose is about to be revealed in Mordecai's life. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. <laughs> Amazing. What are the odds? Out of thousands of pages in the royal register, the one that's chosen to put the king asleep happens to mention Mordecai's kind deed. What are the odds of that? This was obviously no accident. Again, God's providence was on display. Well, the king needs a courier to deliver Mordecai's reward. And so he asks, is there anyone in the building? And guess who shows up early for work that morning? So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. <laughs> you know, as the rabbis say, coincidence is not a kosher word. There are no accidents with God. I wonder how many circumstances have occurred in our lives that were the hand of God, and yet we chalked them up to coincidence. Oh, well, that just happened. It's amazing how many interesting circumstances just so happen in this book of Esther. Hey, when, that, when it just so happens in our life, when circumstances come together in God's preordained plan, let's make sure that we give God credit where credit is due. Verse 5, the king's servants said to him, well, Haman is here, and he's standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> Haughty Haman assumes the king's talking about him. And so he lays it on thick, man. He goes lavish. And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Oh my, here's Haman's suggestion to the king. Deck this man out in your own royal threads. Put him on a white stallion. Throw a parade in his honor. Sing his praises through the street. All the time thinking that this man is him. Then the king said to Haman, you know, I like your idea. Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. New robe, $800. Horse, $2,000. Parade, $5,000. Look on Haman's face, priceless. <laughs> Haman turns white as a sheep, man. His jaw must have dropped three feet. 
Verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse. I mean, he had no choice. This was now the king's command. And he arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And Haman had to have died every step of the way. And Mordecai's reaction to all of this had to have been just as funny. I mean, how do you react when your mortal enemy becomes the leader of the parade in your honor? I mean, wow. Well, afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. When Haman told his wife, Jairus, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife, Zeres, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Perhaps they were aware of God's blessing on the Jews. And they're thinking, wait a minute, you've picked a fight with one of God's kids. And in doing so, you've picked a fight with God. You're not going to stand, Haman, you're going to fall. Well, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. All of a sudden, the limousine arrives. It's going to take Haman to the banquet with King Queen Esther. He gets in the limo, and he'll never return home. You think this is as low as he can go. You think Haman has hit bottom. You figure Haman has just gotten a 23-month sentence for dogfighting. But believe it or not, it's going to get worse. His coach is about to quit. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. And finally, Esther spills the beans, and she gets to her request. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. Verse 5. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, and she had to have pointed to her other dinner guest, the adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. And so Haman was terrified before the king and queen. I have no doubt that verse is inspired. Haman wants to go home and crawl back into bed and try getting up on the other side this time. I mean, this is a bad day he's having. What happens next is wild. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Now Ahasuerus is furious. 
His trusted officer has plotted to kill his wife and all of his in-laws. And recall, when Ahasuerus gets mad, he makes rash decisions. You remember his anger, remember from last week, his anger caused him to banish his former queen Vashti. You remember that part of the story? Well, in the anger management class he's been taking since that episode, Ahasuerus has learned that it's not a good idea to act rashly. That when you get angry, you need to just sort of leave the room for a little bit. Settle down before you make any decisions. Regain your composure. Then you can make a decision. And so the king steps out of the room to take a little walk in his royal gardens. He needs a little cooling off period. Of course, when Ahasuerus leaves the room, Haman starts to beg for his life. He bows before Esther. He's groveling before her. He's pleading with her. He's he's an emotional wreck, and he's kind of groveling, and he's pleading. And, And all of a sudden, he slips, and he kind of falls over the couch where Esther has been sitting. Verse 8. And when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. The king walks back in and he sees Haman's posture and it looks like he's making a pass at Esther. Oh my. You think Ahasuerus is mad. Now he's really mad. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And when someone throws the old black hood over your head, it's never a good sign. Hey, when Mordecai and Haman woke up that morning, the morning of that day, there's no way that either man could have envisioned the change in fortune that they would experience that day. That's why I'm always excited when I wake up in the morning. Seriously. Because who knows what God wants to do in my life that day? Who knows what circumstances God might want to change? What what orchestration He might want to work in my life? It doesn't matter how hopeless my situation might be. I serve God. The God who's in control of all these things. Imagine Mordecai. He wakes up under a death sentence. And yet by the time that the day's over, the situation has totally reversed itself. Mordecai's in Haman's place and Haman is hanging from the gallows. Get excited when you wake up in the morning. Who knows what God's going to want to do in your life that day? Verse 9 is the irony of all ironies. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Well, look at that. The gallows. They weren't there yesterday, were they? And look at that. Man, they're 50 cubits high. And I heard that Haman made them for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf. And he's standing in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him high. Hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Haman hangs from the gallows he built for Mordecai. How quickly God turned the tables on the enemy of the Jews. Makes you think of Saddam Hussein, doesn't it? And you know, this has been the case throughout the history of the Jews. How quickly God has turned the tables 
on those who hate the Jews. Guys, God told Abraham that he would bless the nations that bless Israel, but he would also curse the nations that curse his people Israel. And God has been faithful to that promise. You know, it's interesting. Even though Hitler killed six million Jews, in an amazing way, God turned the tables on Hitler's intentions. For it was the Holocaust that would soften world opinion, that would convince the United Nations of the need for a Jewish homeland. Hitler, the man that wanted to annihilate the Jews, was the primary cause in the formation of the modern state of Israel. After the Holocaust, the United Nations realized that Israel needed its own homeland. That the Jews would never be safe unless they had their own country and their own nation. What a strange twist. As Germany crumbled, Israel was reborn. God is into turning the tables on those who hate the Jews. Well, chapter 8 begins. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. <laughs> Esther gets Haman's wealth. Mordecai gets his job. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. And the story applies to you and me. God is faithful to his people. When circumstances become grim, when all hope seems lost, when your fate seems hopeless, don't forget Esther. How quickly God can turn the tables. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. Now, even though Haman is dead, Esther knows that the clock is still clicking on the annihilation of the Jews. In 12 months, a bounty will be out on the heads of the Jews. And assassins all over Persia will try to cash in. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, when he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree for the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a letter which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring no one can revoke. Now remember, under Persian law, once a king signed an edict, it was irrevocable. Even the king himself couldn't reverse a prior decision that he had made. Once a decree was made by the king, it was final. But what Ahasuerus can do now is he can issue a new decree that will counterbalance his previous orders. 
Remember, because of Haman's insistence, he had ordered that all the Jews would be dead by the 12th month of the year. Now, though, he's going to issue a new order that's going to allow the Jews all over Persia to arm themselves and to defend themselves against their attackers. Verse 9. Here we des- it describes how the Persian scribes record Ahasuerus' new orders. And, and one thing interesting about verse 9. Good trivia question. In the next, time, next time you play Bible trivia, here's something you throw out. What is the longest verse in the Bible? Esther chapter 8 verse 9. The verse we're about to read. Longest verse in the Bible. It's 81 words long. Ready? So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is in the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. The whole Persian empire was put on notice. 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. The Persian Pony Express delivered this new decree all across Persia. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews, who were in every city, to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar. The Jews were even given first strike authority. In other words, they could launch a preemptive strike if it were necessary. And it's interesting This has been the strategy of the modern state of Israel. You remember in 1981, as Saddam Hussein grew closer to producing a nuclear bomb, Israeli jets blew up his reactor in an overnight raid. They couldn't allow him to obtain nuclear weapons. They had to silence the threat before it could get launched. It was a preemptive strike. And this is the dilemma Facing Israel today, Ahmadinejad and Iran are on the verge of having nuclear capabilities. And the Israelis cannot allow it to happen. A preemptive strike is on the horizon. When we were in Israel, when we were down at the Dead Sea, we saw F-16s flying right above us. They were doing their training exercises right down in the desert. We also saw some American military leaders on the ground. A chopper came in. When we were on top of Masada, a chopper came in and a group of, uh, they were two-star generals, some three-star generals. They had gotten out of the chopper and they were up on top of Masada looking around. And our guide commented to me. He said, Sandy, something is up. We started talking and he told me he believes that it's only months before the Israelis bombed those Iranian reactors. He said, we've got to strike. We've got to strike first. We cannot allow this madman in Iran, this Jew hater in Iran, to develop these nuclear devices. We were talking. He's convinced that Israel is going to strike before Bush leaves office. 
It's interesting that today the Persian or the Iranian leader is Israel's enemy. In Esther's day, Ahasuerus was Israel's friend. He tells the Jews to mobilize themselves and to get ready. To take preemptive precaution if necessary, but to defend themselves. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. In other words, when this day arrives, the Jews are going to be loaded for bear. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, the royal colors of Persia, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Hey, if we can't beat them, we might as well join them. It became obvious to them that God's blessing was upon the Jewish people by this turn of fortune and this edict issued by Ahasuerus. Now when D-Day rolls around, the Jews all over Persia are armed to the teeth so in the twelfth month, that is, in the month of Adar, in the thirteenth day, or if you're looking for a date you might recognize, March the 7th, 473 B.C., the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. Even the government resources were directed to help defend the Jews. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Mordecai had ascended to a top-level post, and so he was able to direct effort and resources to help the Jews defend themselves on the 13th day of Adar. Isn't it interesting how many Jews have ascended to high-level posts under Gentile rulers. You remember Joseph in Egypt? Remember him? You remember Daniel in Babylon? Here Mordecai in Persia? Nehemiah in Judah? Henry Kissinger under Richard Nixon? Caspar Weinberger, a Jew, under Ronald Reagan? Madeleine Albright under Bill Clinton? FYI, we saw Madeleine last week in Jerusalem. She happened to be at the Wailing Wall the same day we were there. Back to Esther, verse 5. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, the ten sons of Haman, 
the enemy of the Jews they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Verses 7 through 9 list Haman's ten sons. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. And so the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. Remember verse 2? No one could withstand them. The Jewish counterattack goes so well that Esther asks for an additional day to finish the job, to totally annihilate the enemies of the Jews. Verse 15. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Haman was not the only anti-Semite in Persia. 75,000 prejudiced Persians were killed by these Jews when they launched their attack. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th. And on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. The victories all over Persia were obvious reasons for the Jews to celebrate. And the rest of chapter 9 discusses the institutionalization of this Jewish celebration. The Jews celebrate to this day in honor of these events what they call the Feast of Purim. Recall the word pur. It means lots. Haman threw them, but God controlled them. That was the story. Mordecai and Queen Esther established a celebration. And every year thereafter, even until today, the Jews commemorate the upper hand that God gave to them over their enemies. Verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. Adar 14th and 15th became a perpetual holiday for the Jews. And to this day, the Jews celebrate this Feast of Purim. 
So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast poor, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. And so they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and on all who should join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year. Two new holidays were added to the Jewish calendar, Adar, the 14th and the 15th. Now, according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. And to this day, the Feast of Purim is a time where the Jews gather together to rejoice and to make merry. Along with Hanukkah, the Feast of Purim is one of the two major Jewish feasts not required in the Law of Moses, Hanukkah and Purim. The Feast of Purim, as we've noted, occurs in the month of Adar, the 14th and the 15th, which is our February, March, if you need to jot it down on your calendar in 2008, the Feast of Purim will occur on March the 20th and the 21st. Now, according to the Jewish Talmud, which was a a writing of the traditions of the Jews, according to the Talmud, on Purim, a person is supposed to make merry. And according to Jewish tradition, a person is supposed to drink so much wine where they can't tell the differences between two phrases. Curses be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. And so you're supposed to get so drunk that you can't understand those two phrases. That's one of the ways the Jews have ordained to celebrate Purim. Americans like to refer to Purim as the Jewish Mardi Gras. Sad to say, but that's what it's become among many of the Jews. Often beauty contests are held on the Feast of Purim in honor of Esther in the story. Now, now here's something very interesting. This was to be a holy day. But today, if, if you travel among secular Jews, they, they celebrate the Feast of Purim, but, but they do it almost the way we do some of our Christmas celebrations. There's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of revelry. It's just an excuse to party. People exchange gifts. This is how the Jews treat a holy day. They've turned it into a hollow day. And yet, can we point the finger? What have we done to our special day? What have we done to Christmas Day? Is there a more holy day on our Christian calendar than the day that God became a man, that Jesus came into this world, that heaven invaded earth? Is there a more holy day on the Christian calendar? And yet, what have we done with this day? For many people, it's just an excuse to party, even get drunk. They lace the eggnog, no less. Isn't it tragic? 
That, that we've turned a day that is to be for worship and for celebration into an excuse to party. This is exactly what the Jews have done with the Feast of Purim. Purim is also a big occasion for the children, which is our Christmas. Kids dress up in crazy costumes during the Feast of Purim. They have Purim parades where they march together. On this day, the story of Esther is always read in the synagogue. And every time the name Haman is read, everyone does what? They boo and they hiss and they shake noisy rattlers that they call groggers. Whenever the word Mordecai gets mentioned, everyone offers up cheers, right? Verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abahel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book, and Purim is still celebrated 2,400 years later. Here's a poem that sort of sums up the book of Esther. Man proposes... God disposes, all things His design fulfill. Every human wrath, unconscious, serves to execute His will. This is the goal of all the ages, highways, byways, higher bend. And despite all foes and factions, God is victor in the end. So man's festival of Purim, read in faith's illumined sense, shall be seen in realms eternal as the feast of providence. Esther is all about God's providence. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tribute or tax on the land and on the islands of the sea. And now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Throughout history, God's providence has protected and prodded his people. I love the, these words by Alexander McLaren. He says, This book of Esther does not say much about God, but his person broods over it all, and is the real spring that moves the movers that are seen. It is all a lesson of how God works out His purposes through men that themselves are to be working out theirs. Isn't that interesting? And what about God's providence in your life? We could spend hours discussing ways that God has providentially intervened in our lives and directed circumstances, often mysteriously so, to fulfill His plans and His purposes for us. Always remember, God has a purpose. And you'll see its accomplishment. It'll work out in due time.